Well, it's our joy again tonight to open the Word of God, and that's the greatest joy we have really in this world. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. And just to get us up to speed, because tonight's uh, relatively short text really depends on knowing the story and knowing the background. And so we're reminded that in 538 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia issued his proclamation that the Jews would be able to send about 50,000 representatives back to Judah and Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple. They laid the foundation of the temple, but encountered almost immediate opposition from surrounding peoples, and this opposition was so stiff, in fact, that it resulted not only in the military destruction of the foundation of the temple that they laid, but an order from Persia that they were to cease and desist. They were to stop building. And so the Jews abandoned the project. They took the wealth that they had brought with them for, from Persia to, uh, to build the temple. And instead, they began building nice homes for themselves out in the country. Well, God didn't bless this effort because they were off track. Their priorities were no longer God's priorities. God's priority was to rebuild the temple. They stayed off track for about 16 years until God sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to awaken them from their spiritual waywardness. And as we'll see as we continue to walk through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll see that the, the Jews' attempts to fully restart the kingdom would spiritually fail because they're still prone to the same sins that got them exiled in the first place. Their hearts haven't changed. Now, the point of Ezra and Nehemiah is that we're ultimately left looking further ahead to a coming kingdom. The return of the exiles was ultimately a failure from a spiritual standpoint. So in this series, we continue to have this forward-looking perspective, looking beyond the last pages of Ezra and Nehemiah. The very first message we did in this series was called, The Kingdom Has Not Yet Come. The second to last message we'll do in, the, in all of Ezra and Nehemiah will be called, The Kingdom Has Still Not Yet Come. And the very last message will be called, Epilogue to Ezra and Nehemiah, When the Kingdom Comes. And that won't be from Ezra and Nehemiah, that'll be from the book of Jeremiah. Because the kingdom doesn't come in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any period of time, you know that we try to put about the same emphasis as the Bible does, on our future hope. And that's a lot. We love our eschatology here. We love our study of the end times because Scripture teaches us that this is a major reason for hope. This is a major motivator for our lives. Our future hope in Christ is what allows us to be able to bear and suffer anything today. Isn't that the case? And so we love our study of the future. And so as often as possible and perhaps maybe more often than I should, we speak of the rapture of the church and the coming redemption of the earth, the re resurrection of our bodies. That, that was what we talked about today, the coming redemption of this earth, that this is my father's world and, and the coming new earth is going to be mind-boggling. There will be jaws dropped all over new earth seeing the coming creation. And so if you're growing in your faith and in your understanding of the tremendous weight that Scripture places on future things, on prophecy, that we relish Paul's words in Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
And if you're taking these lessons from Ezra and Nehemiah to heart, the lessons that we've seen so far that God is faithful in all the ways that we've seen, and if you're rightly learning that the greatest hope we have is not in today, but in tomorrow, this is good, this is right, and this is biblical. But sometimes, even in the midst of rightly looking ahead to the future, sometimes don't you want to pray Lord, I wouldn't mind having a good day today also. Don't you say, I believe in the glory that is to come. I believe all that the Bible says about the perfection of the future. I believe in the coming millennial kingdom. I believe in the coming reign of Christ on earth. I believe in the coming new heavens and new earth. I believe all of that. I believe in the resurrection of my body. I believe in the the inculcation of the church. I believe in the regathering of Israel. We relish all that and I believe all that. But I wouldn't mind a blessing or two right now either. Just a little bit. And that's not a bad prayer. And in fact, it's right in line with our text for tonight. That yes, ultimately the return of the exiles will fail. And that Israel needs to look to the far future, to the coming of a perfect king. A perfect savior who will open their eyes to the need for salvation in Christ. And give them the Holy Spirit to change their hearts and rule them lovingly in the restored Israel. But as part of God's faithfulness as we look to the future, he does, in fact, provide some daily joys along the way. So tonight's evidence of the great faithfulness of God is that God gives joy in accomplishment. God gives joy in accomplishment. I have a simple plan for tonight. I'd like to walk through the next event in the returned exiles' lives. It's a breath of fresh air. It's a time of happiness for the people And then we're going to apply this happy and joyful text to our own lives. So we'll spend about half of our time just walking through the text, and then the other half we'll apply it to our lives here and now. So first we're going to look at the story, and I'll divide it into two simple parts. Part one we'll call temple dedication. Temple dedication. Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. We'll back up one verse. Verse 14, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So the temple is finished. Now, according to Haggai chapter 1, verse 15, the rebuilding of the temple began precisely on the 24th day of the sixth month in the year, the second year of Darius, the king of Persia. On our calendars, that was September 21st, 520 B.C. We know the exact date. Now, last time in verse 14 that I just read, we noted the providence of God working through the king of Persia to bless the Jews. And one little quick note here about verse 14 King Artaxerxes is also mentioned who comes after the temple was complete. And we're reminded that the success that's talked about in verse 14 is really a big picture, a reminder to the reader of of the eventual success of all the building projects of the Jews. Yes, they're, they're not bringing the kingdom in, but their building projects would in fact succeed. It was the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem that took place later under Artaxerxes. So verse 14 is kind of a broad a statement that says all of the building projects of the Jews ultimately were successful. 
But now in verse 15, this statement is very specific only to the completion of the temple. On the third day of the month of Adar, which is the 12th month in the Babylonian calendar, approximately February, March for us, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. And so the temple was complete on March 12th, 515 BC, four and a half years after the project began. That's a milestone. That's a significant, significant accomplishment. The nation was now coming together under the banner of the worship of Yahweh. And after four and a half years of work, protected by God through his providential use of Darius, king of Persia, now it was time to dedicate the temple. It was time to return to the days of old. Verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Now we'll stop right there for a moment. This dedication, celebration, and worship service took place sometime between March 12, 515 B.C. and Passover, which would have been April 21st that year. So sometime in the first five weeks or so after completion, the Jews had this massive dedication service. And you notice what this project has done for them, by the way. Verse 16 emphasizes the unity of the people, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles, all the people listed in Ezra chapter 2. They're unified together. And this is important for us to know this, that unity in God's people is achieved and enjoyed only in one circumstance. And that is under the banner of a God-focused concentration of worshiping together. That's where we're unified. When they had abandoned work on the temple, what happened to them? Remember, they scattered. They, they each went to their own houses. They became self-absorbed with their own lives instead of having a corporate concern with the glory of God and worship. And what worship it was. They sacrificed 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering, one goat for every tribe of Israel, 12 total. This sin offering was prescribed in Leviticus 4 and 5. It represented the spiritual confession to God of all the sins and iniquity and impurity of God's people. This was a monumental day. This meant that fellowship was officially restored between God and Israel. This was, this was huge. They were, they were made up. They were reconciled. Now, I want to make sure you note this. The author makes sure to mention that the sin offering was given on behalf of all of Israel. Now, remember that only about 42,000 Jews plus about 7,000 servants and attendants came with them from Babylon. But they see themselves as representatives. That all of Israel, no matter where they are, is now reconciled to God. And by giving this sin offering, they're acknowledging the national sin of the whole nation. And in their sacrifices now, fellowship with God is restored. And so the, the day of the temple dedication wasn't just a day to celebrate the, the, the end of a building project. It was much more than that. It was to celebrate being restored to communion with God. Let, let me put it to you this way. This is fresh on our minds because we just finished our building project here, or phase one. I hate to tell you there's two, three, and four coming up. But we've just finished phase one. Can you imagine on June 12th, when our first Sunday happened here, can you imagine if that was the day that our fellowship with God was restored? Oh, that's way bigger than just a building, right? 
So for them, temple dedication was about communion with God. That's part one, temple dedication. Let's look at the other part we'll call spiritual punctuation. Spiritual punctuation, temple dedication and spiritual punctuation. You know what punctuation is. It refers to divisions or marking points. We need punctuation in our writing to know where to stop or where to pause. A life that's lived without spiritual punctuation is one in which your life revolves around everything else except worship. That worship is something you squeeze in around the other things that seem so important. The law of Moses provided for spiritual punctuation. The entire year was marked by various feasts and festivals and sacrifices and gatherings. The week was marked by the Sabbath day. And finally now, for the first time in many decades, the Jews in Judah would return to the faithfulness of keeping the spiritual calendar centered around temple worship. And so they get set for beginning to live spiritually punctuated lives The spiritual leaders of the Jews are now set apart and they're commissioned and they're appointed. Verse 18. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. And we've talked about this before uh, earlier in Ezra, Nehemiah. and We also talked about it when we were in the Pentateuch. But just a very simple way to understand the priests and the Levites would be our understanding of elders and deacons. And that's how they function, the spiritual leaders and the servants. And so that was the same sort of structure. The author makes certain to point out that they were working to obey the Lord on how the people of God are are to be led. They don't just get to make up how God's people are to function together. They don't decide, well, the times are different now, and so we'll do something different. No, they went back to what? To the book of Moses. King David had set up the original divisions of priests and Levites in the first temple. First Chronicles 23 through 27 tells us this. But the ministries, the duties of the priests and the Levites had been given by Moses in Leviticus 9 and 10 and Numbers 3 and 4. So they go all the way back reading the Torah, reading the law to see how to lead God's people. Now you might know this once again. We've talked about this a couple of times. There's a link here with their forefathers. That like the people of Israel who were freed from Egypt, they had been freed from Babylon to return to their home. And now, like the people of Israel who received the word of God from Moses, they too were returning to the law, to the book of Moses. Their history mattered to them and they were going back to the core value of obedience to the word of God in something that we can only imagine. And that is an entire society crafted around worship. That all of society was around worship. And now that their worship cycle, their spiritual punctuation had been restarted. And now that temple worship and spiritual leadership had been reformed now, they appropriately went to the first major sacrifice and celebration after completing the temple, the Passover. The Passover was the important celebration of Israel's redemption and salvation from slavery in Egypt, how God passed over the Jews their homes in Egypt because of the sacrificial blood of what? The Passover lamb in each home. And instead, God judged the Egyptians by slaying the firstborn of every Egyptian household. This is quintessential faithful Judaism in action here. This isn't just a return to temple worship. This is a return to the focus of each and every family in their homes on God's gracious rescue of them. 
now really a double celebration of the historic rescue from Egypt and also the return from exile. So in a temporary sense, at least, Israel was back for the first time in many centuries. And in fact, the author of Ezra, Nehemiah, makes this very, very clear in one way that's not readily apparent in our English Bibles. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 4 for a moment, probably about one page back. How does the author of Ezra Nehemiah make it clear that Israel is back? Ezra 4 is when the discouragement and the opposition really heats up. Ezra 4 verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Then we have the letter from these opponents of the Jews to the Persian king. And remember that this is looking ahead in time since Artaxerxes was after the temple rebuilding. But it continues to embody how opposition was total and and continued on and on. But you notice at the end of verse 7, the letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Aramaic was the language of Babylon and it was essentially the common language of much of the ancient Near East. But here's what I want you to note. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 8, the author of Ezra Nehemiah writes in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Because now the focus is on the extensive correspondence back and forth to the Persian king. And so why is this here? Well, this use of Aramaic reminds the reader that Israel was still dominated by Gentiles. They were still not the nation that they had once been. They, they weren't back yet. Chapter 4, verse 17, the king sent an answer. And here, the author of Ezra Nehemiah still writes in Aramaic. Chapter 4, verse 24, the last verse of the chapter. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The tragic work stoppage recorded still in Aramaic. All of chapter 5, the opposition by Tatanai, the Persian governor of Judah, the correspondence back and forth to King Darius, the decree by King Darius in chapter 6 that work on the temple should be supported and finished, all in Aramaic. The declaration in chapter 6, verse 14, that God used Gentiles and Gentile kings to accomplish his purposes, still in Aramaic. The setting up of temple worship and dedication of the temple made possible from a human vantage point by Gentile kings, still in Aramaic. But when it came time for the core identity of the Israelite people to be remembered, that they were a people defined by the fact that they had been passed over that God's judgment had passed over them. They had not been judged in Egypt, but had been redeemed from slavery. When the author of Ezra Ezra Nehemiah writes in chapter 6, verse 19, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. He returns to writing in Hebrew because they're back. The Jews were once again in right fellowship and communion with God And glimpses of their holy set-apart nature are now being seen. It was because the people had made a sacrifice. They had been reconciled to God that they were now able and they were qualified spiritually to participate in Passover as God's Hebrew chosen people. Verse 20, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. 
So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. The priests and the Levites had undergone the ceremonial cleansing required by the law. And so they might be pure and be able to lead God's people in the Passover celebration. And now this tells us, by the way, that the religious leaders of the people were conscientious. They, they, were, they had an internal reality of faith. They desired to worship humbly. They desired to worship in purity. And as such, they were able to kill the Passover lambs on behalf of all the people. The sacrificial lambs were then taken and eaten in the homes of the various families represented here. Now, something amazing happens, and this is a, a testimony to faithfulness. You remember what the job of Israel is. What is the reason Israel even exists? What's the purpose of the nation? And still is, by the way. They just haven't accomplished it yet. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is God speaking. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and here's their purpose. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The purpose of Israel was to be the light of the world. To be the light pointing to the one true living God. The Jews who had returned, they weren't perfect, but they had determined to set themselves apart as God's holy nation. In Ezra 4, you recall, they refused the so-called help of the surrounding peoples who said that they were Yahweh worshipers. But in fact, they were just syncretists, those who mixed and matched their worship of Yahweh with the worship of every other God they could find. They showed themselves to be mindful to obey the word of God. And when the word of God came through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the Jews restarted construction on the temple before even they had Persian permission to do so. You remember this. And all of these efforts by a holy nation did not go unnoticed. In fact, they had an impact on the peoples around them. This is mind-blowing. Verse 21. It, that is the Passover, was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Two important notes here. It's important to understand that the Jews, although they suffered opposition from peoples around them, they didn't return this opposition with antagonism to all the Jews around them. They kept what we would call in the New Testament church a good witness. They maintained their character. Returning antagonism to Gentiles was characteristic of the Jews in Jesus' day, and he condemned them for it. The Jews were willing and happy to embrace and to accept all who desired to worship Yahweh through the repentance of sin. In other words, all of their efforts through opposition, all of their faithfulness, all of their listening to the word of God through Haggai and Zechariah, it had an impact on peoples around them. And when it came time to celebrate the first Passover, there were knocks on the door of Israel, as it were, saying, we want to worship your God. We reject all the gods of our fathers and we worship only Yahweh now. And the Jews embraced them. One other note, the invitation to all who would believe has always been the case. This wasn't new. 
In the law of Moses, Numbers 9.14 says, If a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute both for the sojourner and for the native. In other words, a Gentile could say, I want to be grafted into Israel. And he showed that by keeping Passover. The spiritual punctuated Lives of the Jews had restarted, and in the spiritual calendar, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was always right after Passover, verse 22. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. They're celebrating with joy because God caused them to have hearts of rejoicing, They're celebrating the providence of God who had used Gentile kings for his own purposes. And you might have noticed here that the king is called the king of Assyria, not the king of Persia. The Persian king had inherited both the empires of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So why is he called here the king of Assyria? Well, this is a bit of a nod to history. The listing of the Persian king as the king of Assyria, harkens back to what was really the beginning of the end for Israel as a people. All the way back to 722 BC when the northern kingdom of Israel was decimated and the survivors that were left were carried off by the Assyrians. The author is pointing out that in the sovereign purposes of God, the same kingdom that was used as the instrument of God's discipline is now being used as the instrument of God's restoration. What we have here is really the end of the exile period, which first began 207 years earlier with the destruction and exile of the northern kingdom of Israel. What a great time. Finishing the temple, beginning the worship calendar once again, seeing many new converts to the worship of Yahweh, adding to the nation, the successful increase of the people of God beginning to happen as it was originally designed. This is a happy, joyful story. And I'd like to spend the rest of our time together this evening seeing what we can learn from God's work in this short text with this small group of returned exiles. And there's much for us to learn. We're going to consider three categories for our lives. And we've done these often in this series and we'll continue to emphasize these categories. The first category is how do you grow in Christ-likeness from this text? Because we always want to look ahead to our own lives and how this applies to us. How do you grow in Christ-likeness? Now, I call this a category because I'm going to divide this category into three other considerations. And they all revolve around joy. The first consideration for growing in Christ-likeness, we'll call it this. Joy is interwoven with finishing well. Joy is interwoven with finishing well. Did you notice the theme that creates bookends for this story? Look with me at verse 16 again. Verse 16, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. In the verse 22, at the other end, And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. They finished well at this juncture. And because they saw God's faithfulness to them, you notice in verse 22 that God made them joyful. This was God's gift. They had previously built houses for themselves during their time of disobedience. Haggai 1 tells us that. 
But because they neglected the, the work of God, they had no joy. And this is a clear lesson for us. If your accomplishments in this life are devoid or separated from the higher priority of furthering God's kingdom, they're empty, they're void. They become the wood, hay, and stubble of 1 Corinthians 3 that gets burned up. But if your accomplishments, which give joy, are married to, if they're part and parcel, connected to the gospel, the kingdom, the church, then joy becomes normal for you. One of the most impactful things I ever witnessed in my life was as a young teenager getting to hang around a, a, a retirement home that was included, included a nursing home. All of them were retired missionaries. And you know, these retired missionaries, some of them were, were in their 90s, were still doing everything they could to promote the gospel. Some could only pray. I remember one precious woman's uh, uh, room that I would visit, and an entire wall was filled with pictures of missionaries. And she would pray through as many of them until she fell asleep. And then she said, when I wake up, I have a snack. And then I keep praying. There was one man in a little two-room suite. He used one of the rooms with an old thing called a printing press. And he used to print gospel tracts and send them for free to every church that would take them. Still just hobbling along, trying to promote the gospel. And these were joyful people. The, the woman who had all the pictures of missionaries on her wall. They would meet for chapel. And I remember being in, in there. And God bless her. She couldn't carry a tune if God gave her a bucket the size of Argentina. But she would whistle. Have you ever heard that in church before? Somebody whistling the hymns. But I'll never forget them. I'll never forget 93 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7-year-old Mrs. Leslie when I knew her. And she was so, her brain was so addled that I would knock on her door to go visit her and she was barely wearing anything and I'm 14 and I'm dying and, and she would go put on some clothes and she would say, you need to go to some Bible college. I never could understand it. Well, I eventually figured out as an adult, she said, you need to go to Biola. Biola is what began Talbot Seminary, which began the Master's Seminary. I have a Master's Seminary pen right here. She got it. She nailed it. But these people... They had joy because they didn't think about retiring from the kingdom. They continued on. Their priorities were right. If your accomplishments are married to the gospel, the kingdom, the church, joy is normal for you. It should be normal. I'm always disappointed to see believers in Christ who earn enough money to decide that they're going to play golf 20 times a week and Take vacation six months a year. What's the point of that? I've got eternity on new earth. I don't need to do all that now. But there are people in Kern County that today will die and go to hell. So joy and accomplishment comes from finishing well. There's a second consideration to growing in Christ likeness. Still with joy. Joy is interwoven with a life of worship. Joy is interwoven with the life of worship. It's impossible to have true joy in the Lord when your life is characterized by hit and miss times with the Lord, particularly times with God's people. And for Israel, what a, what a joy they had. God built into their year, built into their calendars, times of the year solely dedicated to, to worship. He also built into their week a day off from working so that they could be singularly focused on the Lord. 
The spiritual punctuation necessary for your life and your joy is obvious in Scripture. The church settled into gathering on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the day Christ was raised. The, the church settled into obeying Christ's command to remember his death through the Lord's Supper. The church settled into baptizing new believers in Christ. The joy of your Christian life is connected incredibly meaningfully to how punctuated your life is by worship. The third consideration for growing in Christ-likeness, joy is interwoven with a life of obedience. Joy is interwoven with a life of obedience. We see this here in this text. We ought to stop praying for the joy of the Lord and for happiness if at the same time there's a sin that you truly believe you ought to hang on to and cherish. You can't pray for both. What a glorious phrase here at the end of verse 18 that the spiritual leadership of Israel was set up as it is written in the book of Moses. My prayer is that God allows me to say this so often in the years that come that we're together that there is the sight of you mouthing the words along with me. And so I'm going to say it again. But there is no Christian joy while you cherish disobedience and rebellion. It's impossible. There's no joyful, snippy, nagging wife. There's no joyful, harsh, and insensitive husband. There's no joyful, unrepentant, sexually immoral person. There's no joyful believer who's just mildly attached to the church. There's no joyful believer who isn't seeking holiness and purity and Christ-likeness. That person doesn't exist. You can have joy and obedience, or you can have disobedience and a continual sense of discontentment. So how do you grow in Christ-likeness from this text here? Joy is interwoven with finishing well. Joy is interwoven with a life of worship. And joy is interwoven with a life of obedience. There's a second category I'd like to apply to us. And again, we'll do these categories in most messages. The second category is what is the road to the cross of Christ from here? What's the road to the cross? The beginning point of our joy as, as Christians is the gospel the day of temple dedication and the offering of the sin offering, this marked, as we said, the official reconciliation of God and his people. Fellowship had been restored, a, a national fellowship that they hadn't enjoyed at this level for centuries. No wonder the people were filled with joy and our joys for exactly the same reason. We've been reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul connects reconciliation and joy in Romans 5, beginning in verse 10. He says, for if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is very important. Reconciliation means the reestablishment of a broken relationship. It, it, is, the, it is the remaking of a bond. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that his ministry was the ministry of reconciliation. That's what the gospel is. It is a proclamation that you are separated from God, but you could be one with God. You could be in communion with God. You could be in fellowship with God. He proclaimed the gospel of Christ, which gives the opportunity for the condemned sinner to have a right relationship. And this is so important because reconciliation takes us beyond just merely the judicial declaration of no more guilt, which alone is, is glorious. The doctrine of justification. 
It takes us beyond just the avoidance of hell. It takes us beyond even just the the enjoyment of, of heaven someday. Not just the forgiveness of sin, but reconciliation. This is the relationship that you have with God the Father, that the father of the prodigal son demonstrated in Luke 15, running to the son that is reconciled, embracing him, celebrating with him, weeping over him. You arriving in heaven, your salvation even, is not somehow something that God stoically marks off his list. Well, it's a good thing he made it, moving right along. No, it's a celebration. Do you realize that Luke 15, in three different ways, tells us that heaven celebrates your salvation, that there is joy in heaven over the sinner who repents? What does reconciliation give you? It gives you joy. Could I say this? If you have trouble with joy, you need to focus more on the gospel and on what you have. You have a heavenly God who allows you to call him Abba because of reconciliation, Father. There's a third category of application. What is the road to Christ's coming kingdom from here? What's the road to Christ's coming kingdom? I feel like we ought to always be reminded of this because, as I've said, Ezra and Nehemiah ends with a big, pff, there's just nothing there. It's a, it's a giant flat tire. It's Nehemiah saying, well, this didn't work out. Lord, remember me in the future, the end. And you're going, what else is there? And so we always have to look to the bigger picture. What is the road to Christ's coming kingdom? The Jews had great joy at the completion of the temple. They, they did a fine job. They put in their very best efforts. But it was small. Even size-wise, it was much smaller than Solomon's temple. They did a good job, but it was still a temporary temple. Now, King Herod would undertake a massive remodeling and expansion of the temple 500 years later, but even that was eventually destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. So this is still a temporary temple. And, And I know for them it was a big deal that they sacrificed 700 animals at this dedication. And we we said earlier, oh, that was big. What a great day. Solomon sacrificed 142,000 animals at the first temple dedication. In 1 Kings 8.63, the Jews in Ezra and Nehemiah were in relative poverty and humiliation compared to the days of Solomon. But most importantly, what it shows is that while they had that joy in accomplishment, the accomplishment was modest and temporary. What does that show us? It shows us that they had joy, yes. They rejoiced, yes. But something better is coming. Something better is coming. That a king is coming who will make that little celebration of the modest temple seem like yesterday's news. But what a gift from the Lord this time of happiness of joy was to them. That sure, it was just a small little temple. And sure, it was just a a small celebration compared to what used to be and certainly compared to what is going to come. But wasn't it kind of the Lord to give that? to give that little accomplishment, to give them joy. And we began our time by observing that, yes, we have a long view of God's redemptive plan for history, including our lives, that we know that heaven and eternity will bring perfect bliss and and happiness. But isn't it a delight when he provides little times of joy now? It's a delight to us. I'd like to, I really am burdened to be an encouragement to you, and I'd like to finish our time together by illustrating this concept. 
Turn with me to Psalm 84. Psalm 84, ironically, is a psalm of longing for Jerusalem, longing for temple worship. It's the song of a pilgrim, uh, of somebody on their way to go to worship God. And I want to read this psalm to us and then just give you one encouraging note that I think will be a delight to us all. Psalm 84, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, each one appearing before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I just want to point out one encouraging note. Verse 5, he says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. This is a beautiful picture. This is a picture of somebody who is not able, for whatever reason, to yet make it to the temple to worship God. And yet he says, In my heart is the highway to Zion, the highway to the temple, the highway to Jerusalem, the highway to the capital of God's people. It's in his heart. But here's the one note I want to point out. Verse 7. They meaning the pilgrims who wish they could go, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So eventually they do make it. This pictures, first of all, an actual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but it also can be applied to the pilgrimage of our entire lives. There's a clear metaphor here. Going from strength to strength, Verse 6 tells us this is speaking very simply of oasis to oasis, to place of water to place of water in the desert land, going from joy to joy, from one time of relief and blessing to the next. What does this tell us? This tells us that just like the Jews in Ezra 6, 14 or so through the end of the chapter, just like they had that moment of, yes, it was a little bitty temple. Yes, it was cute compared to Solomon's. Yes, it was nothing compared to the one that's to come. But they got to celebrate. They were unified. They were even effective because the peoples around them came and came to true faith in Yahweh. On your journey toward the final kingdom of Christ on earth, on your journey in this life, on your journey toward heaven, as we're striving to live faithfully unto him, you may expect to see joys, And happy moments along the way. 
little blessings, cool, refreshing water to strengthen you for the next leg of your journey home to the kingdom of Christ Jesus. God will not leave you in any place ever where you can't look back and see the last place of strength and look ahead and see that another one is coming until you get to the last one you need, which is the strength to die well. You will go from strength to strength, from joy to joy. And they might seem far apart. They might seem distant. But God will always give you enough cool, refreshing spiritual water to make it from one oasis to the next. And you may arrive home in heaven, praising God that in this difficult world, you went from strength to strength. Little joys from little accomplishments. And you can take comfort in that. Amen. Let's be comforted together in prayer. Our Father, we come to you now as weaklings. We are sorrowful in this world. We weep in this world. We have sadness in this world. Every week holds struggles. Every week holds mysteries and and difficulties. For many here, even seated in this room, the thought of waking up tomorrow morning on a Monday and doing what they have to do is a is an overwhelming thought. Something we just do by discipline. But Lord, as we've seen in this text here, there are moments, there are days of refreshing. There are moments of joy. There are moments of strength. And we pray that we would see them, that our eyes would be open to see that even in the midst of pain and anguish and sorrow and suffering, that we encounter almost every day of our lives, there are little blessings, little temples, as it were, that show us that you are faithful. Until that glorious moment when you bring us to the final oasis, to the moment when the angels of heaven take us home, to that moment when we are absent from the body and with the Lord. And now we don't go from oasis to oasis. We live in the oasis. We long for that day, but in the meantime, I pray for us as a people that we are characterized by those who have a positive view of your daily blessings to us, that we go from joy to joy, strength to strength, by the power of the Spirit, by the truth of the Word, and by our faithfulness and determination to obey you until that day that we see you face to face. Give us that strength, Lord, from strength to strength, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.